Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey guys, it's Kayla. I'm so happy you're able to join us today because we are all still so directionally challenged. We thought we'd have it all figured out by the time we were in our 30s, but surprise, we don't. And that's okay. When was the last time you had an argument with someone who was really important to you? Do you remember what it was about? Do you remember how you reacted? Do you tend to feel overly anxious when someone you're dating doesn't immediately text you back? The answers to all these questions are connected with your attachment style. Each of us has an attachment style, which is a subconscious set of rules formed by our environment during childhood and carried through adulthood. And this determines how we communicate, perceive the world, set personal boundaries, and connect with others. Today, we're going to talk to Thais Gibson about this and so much more. She here to share insights, traits, and the impacts each attachment style has on our relationships. So let's get to it. Without further ado, let's start building the best relationships we have in our lives. And here's my conversation with Thais Gibson. 
And I am here with Thais Gibson. I'm so grateful that you're here. You know, attachment theory is something I've always been really interested in. And so I just want to start with the basics so we can all have a collective understanding. Take us through what attachment theory is and what the different attachment styles are. Absolutely. So the, there are four major attachment styles. Attachment theory was originally developed by John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth. And then over time, it really talked a lot about how your attachment style is sort of the subconscious set of rules you have for what it means to give and receive love. So if you imagine, for example, the analogy I often give to people is if you have a different attachment style from somebody else, it's sort of like you're sitting down to play a board game with a different rule book for how the game's supposed to go. Like if you and I sit down to play a board game and you have the rules for Monopoly and I have the rules for Scrabble, like there's going to be a lot of challenges. It's not going to be that fun. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) It's going to get frustrating pretty quickly. So basically, when we look at some of the different attachment dynamics, there are four major attachment styles. Every single person has an attachment style. The first attachment style is secure. Securely attached people generally grew up with really healthy modeling about relationships. So they learn, I can trust people, I can rely on people. They get a lot of modeling for how to communicate through problems and challenges. Mm -hmm. And they have a lot of what we call approach-oriented behaviors from their parents growing up. So basically what happens is if a child grows up in a secure home, there's, you know, if the child cries, the the parent will really make an effort to like go towards them, to check in with them. And what this is giving is all of this different subconscious messaging to a child among things like, oh, if I express emotions, it will be received. It will be heard. If Mm -hmm. I am upset, somebody will be there to support me and care for me. So they learn to feel worthy, basically, of love, of connection. And they learn to feel like love and connection are safe things that they can rely on. But a lot of people don't actually grow up in securely attached homes. So what we often find instead is that there are three other attachment styles. And these attachment styles, can you can sort of imagine them along a continuum. So on one side of the continuum, there is the anxious, preoccupied attachment style. And this child usually grows up in a household where there may be very loving caregivers, like really warm parents, but those parents may work a lot. And so they're constantly left with grandparents who may be a little bit more cold or withdrawn. So there's this constant feeling for this child in this home of love is here and love is a really good thing, but it's constantly taken away from me. Mm. And so they'll feel this, this sort of perceived abandonment abandonment. Another sort of dynamic that can create anxious attachment style if there's actually a bad divorce and one parent truly abandons the household. So it's really like real or perceived abandonment. And as adults, this person becomes terrified of losing connection. They they chronically fear abandonment. They can be sometimes needy or clingy in their relationship dynamics because there's this constant fear of like, oh my goodness, what if I lose somebody again? And on the other end of the attachment continuum, there's a dismissive avoidant attachment style. And dismissive avoidance usually grew up with childhood emotional neglect. So this is often something that flies under the radar. Like they may have a really stable family household where both parents are like, kind and supportive and there may be structure and order in the family household. But, you know, there may be if you cry, it's like, don't be a crybaby, you know, be quiet. Children should be seen and not heard. Or there may be an actual like ignoring or shaming of the emotions. And so this child grows up to basically reject that part of themselves and reject their own vulnerability because it essentially gets rejected. And so as an adult, they don't want to bond too closely with somebody. In fact, if somebody gets too close, they sometimes feel threatened. And they often like need a lot of time on their own. They're hyper-independent and they can even be afraid of commitment. And so, you know, as, as fate would have it, 
anxious attachment styles and dismissive avoidance often pair up together as well. And so there can be a lot of push-pull dynamics. And then last but not least, there's a fearful avoidant attachment style. And fearful avoidance usually grow up in, in a dynamic that's very chaotic. So we may have, for example, a parent who's an alcoholic, a parent with narcissistic personality disorder, a really terrible, painful divorce with a lot of fighting. And there will be really good moments with love, but really scary moments with love. So the fearful avoidant basically grows up thinking, you know, I really want love because they've had good experiences, but I'm terrified of people getting too close. And so they're sort of hot and cold in their relationship, sort of like, come here, get close to me. And somebody gets closer, like, get back. <laughs> and they're, they're sort of a pendulum swinging. They very much fear betrayal in relationships. They fear people getting too close, but they also fear people abandoning them. And there's a lot of sort of challenge in that. I mean, all I'm getting from this is that I'm a parent and I'm just going to screw my kids up because it's so... No, I mean, I say this sarcastically because it's one of those things where there's so much... I didn't realize how much was put on the childhood, on on each of our childhoods and how that will affect us for the rest of our lives. So no pressure to all of us parents out there and how we, you know, we think we're doing a really good job, but then, you know, no one's perfect. So obviously there will be discrepancies in parenting and in childhood. So, you know... I think it's really interesting to have that impact on someone, but then also a lot of pressure to have that impact on someone. But while I was reading your book, I realized that there's also, you know, you can be one main attachment style, but then there's also could be an underlying one as well, right? Can you explain this to everyone? Because it can be a lot of information to take in in the beginning, but I think it's a really important thing to learn for us to learn so we can have better relationships in life because that's really all we want is to be more connected with each other. Absolutely. So I will say one thing really briefly too, is that with with parents, the goal is not to be perfect and no parent will ever be perfect. (laughs) And the, what, what it really boils down to in terms of programming is like the, the ratio, right? So if, if somebody's showing up 80% of the time in a great way as a parent and 15, 20% of the time, there's some mistakes or some challenges, you know, things like that you're still going to have a a mostly secure child. So for anybody who's like, oh my goodness, I made a mistake last Saturday morning. (laughs) You know, it's okay. It's not going to change your child forever. It's like the overarching themes of how you show up that are most meaningful. So just wanted to drop that in there really briefly. (laughs) Thank you. But but basically what happens is we can have what we call a secondary attachment style. So everything is not just like so black and white, so clean cut. Like you can be somebody who grew up in, in a mostly secure home and then maybe Maybe once you were a teenager or, you know, you were eight or nine years old, your parents started working more. And so there was a little bit of perceived abandonment. And so you may have a little bit of anxious edges or, you know, sort of secondary anxious attachment style. Another variation could be as a fearful avoidant. Maybe you had more experiences where abandonment was an issue rather than betrayal or being trapped. So you might be fearful avoiding because you grew up in the chaotic childhood, but you may be more anxious leaning because you fear a lot of abandonment happening. Mm-hmm. And so you'll see that like it's not just you land exactly in this category we will often have a secondary attachment style based on our experiences and a lot of those experiences have to do with how we learn to adapt to those types of situations so for example fearful avoidance they will activate 
meaning they will try to cling and hold on and maintain proximity, but they will also deactivate. They will also like really push people away all of a sudden to self-protect. Dismissive avoidance, they tend to more exclusively just keep people at bay in a more pervasive way. Anxious attachment styles tend to more exclusively just cling on to people. So you can often find like what your main attachment style is and, and which way you lean based on specifically how much you deactivate versus activate in your relationships is a really good sort of North Star to pay attention to. Interesting. Okay. And go. can you go just a little bit in depth for myself and the listeners as far as like, what do you mean by activate and deactivate? Yes. So if anybody's ever activated, they may find, for example, that their conscious mind knows better. They're like, I'm going to stop calling this person. They're not good for me. Or I'm going to put my phone in the other room so I don't text them again. I know that they haven't answered me yet. But there's this patterning in the subconscious mind that's so driven to not have to lose the connection that the subconscious mind, which ultimately runs the show in our lives, will basically overpower the conscious mind's I know better kind of dynamics. And so they'll find themselves like activating as this basically subconscious strategy to maintain closeness in a relationship. And it will often come off, unfortunately, as like clingy or needy or desperate, but it's actually subconsciously a bit of a trauma response from past abandonment wounds that haven't been resolved. Deactivating looks different for the fearful avoidant versus dismissive avoidant attachment style. So deactivating for a dismissive avoidant is usually they will keep you at bay. They don't want to be like deeply seen, deeply known because it feels too vulnerable and all of their conditioning was, no, 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 emotions are bad. That part of yourself is only worthy of rejection. So they feel a lot of shame around their own feelings of vulnerability. So they'll really try to like keep a distance from people in that way. And so that can cause them to feel like, okay, when people get close, they're kind of buffering people away all the time. And so that's deactivation is trying to, rather than maintain proximity. They're trying to maintain distance between themselves and others as a coping mechanism. And then fearful avoidance really go both ways. They'll they'll activate or they'll deactivate, but because fearful avoidance have more trauma, like more chaos, more emotional roller coaster in childhood, sometimes their deactivating is a little bit more harsh. So sometimes they're more like pushing people away rather than just pulling away. Dismissal avoidance will often kind of like, you know, pull back and go into their shell Fearful avoidance may say things that are harsh or critical to push people away all of a sudden or threaten to leave a relationship all of a sudden, even if they don't really mean it because they're coming from a deactivation that's more trauma-based. Hey guys, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back in just a minute. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. And we're back. I mean, this is all so fascinating. And I think you do such a good job in your book of, you know, helping us identify truly what we are. It may be, you know, a bit much intake while we're listening to it, but I highly just want our listeners to know I highly recommend your book because I think it is absolutely fascinating. You have really, can you talk to us about how you have changed the course of thought when it comes to attachment theory. I mean, you have added so much and you now have your own theory called modern integrated attachment theory. And it was once widely accepted that your attachment style was set for life. But your research shows that you can actually change your attachment style. And this is huge because now we can improve our romantic relationships, our family connections and our friendships. Um, So talk to us about that and how, I mean, congratulations, because that is such a huge feat. And how did you come to find this and research this and present it to the world? Thank you so much. Yeah. So I actually started my practice in like counseling, but also my first like long-term certification was in hypnotherapy. So a lot about the subconscious mind. And I learned two really important things that like really kind of woke me up to a lot of different ways that things are taking place in our mind. And it's that your conscious mind cannot outwill or overpower your subconscious mind. And your subconscious mind is responsible for 95 to 97% of your beliefs, your thoughts, your emotions, and your actions. So if you've ever had the experience of going, I am going to, you know, quit eating chocolate for New Year's and then four days later, you're eating chocolate again, or I'm going to learn to go to the gym (laughs) every day after work. And then you self-sabotage on like day three, or, you know, these times where we tell ourselves we're going to do things, I'm going to manage my anger better in relationships and then yelling at my partner again, or I'm going to stop being so critical in my, you know, to my family and then back to the same sorts of patterns. I'm going to stop pushing people away. So what's happening is your conscious mind intends these things and your subconscious mind has these different programs. So what was interesting is when I went into the space of attachment theory and relationships, I was like, well, we're not born with an attachment style. It's conditioned into us through what we see over time. So just by understanding how the subconscious works, 
I know that it's possible to recondition. So I sort of went on a quest to figure out what our attachment style can really be boiled down to and how we can recondition those core parts. And so what I found over time is that it's really our core wounds, which are like our fears or stories about love. Um, As an example, the anxious attachment style, they fear like I will be abandoned, I will be rejected, I will be excluded, I will be disliked. Then we have our dismissive avoidant who's like, I will be seen as defective or weak if I'm vulnerable. It's unsafe for me to open up. I will be trapped or helpless in the wrong relationship. And then for fearful avoidance, a lot of it is like, I will be abandoned. They have a lot of those fears, but also, oh my gosh, what if I do get trapped in relationships and I can't trust? It's a really big one for fearful avoidance as well as I am unworthy. So they're constantly trying to like earn their worth in the world by overcompensating. So when we learned that, and then I realized, okay, well, there's these other fundamental patterns. And I was seeing like 40 or so clients a week and getting to test out a lot of these different sort of methods when it came to, okay, here's our core stories. Here's how we can reprogram these because there's a lot of tools for how to recondition these painful ideas that we adopted that can really wreak havoc on our lives as long as they're sitting and as a part of our subconscious programming. And so we learned to recondition the core wounds. Then each attachment style has really unique needs. So for somebody who's, you know, dismissive avoidant, they need to be acknowledged. They need to be appreciated in small ways. They need to feel safe and they want relationship harmony. For somebody who's anxiously attached, they need a lot of validation and reassurance and certainty in their relationship. So we learn to isolate exactly what each attachment style needs and get them to practice communicating that in their relationships. And so what we found is when we could get them to build a healthier relationship to their needs, start communicating their needs to others carefully and and in a healthy way, And then also on top of that, start reprogramming their core wounds. These were exactly the root causes of how somebody was insecurely attached to begin with, that when addressed would actually recondition them to become secure because they started having these secure experiences around love. So how then do we identify what our core wounds are and how do we even begin to try and recalibrate that because I mean I think self-work is the most important work and that's why we started directionally challenged in the beginning is to try and become the best version of ourselves but that sounds really hard to do is that something you can do alone do you need guidance in that I don't know great question so it's actually not very hard I think it's just not very talked about I'm so glad that's your answer (laughs) (laughs) so so basically what happens is The conscious mind speaks language. So the conscious mind here is like, do not do this or do not do that. The subconscious mind, its actual language is emotion and imagery. So somebody who did a a lot of work in hypnosis, you know, it was like, how can we just learn to reprogram our own subconscious without having to go into a hypnosis session or go to a hypnotherapist for years and years? And really it boils down to these, these few principles. So if we have a core wound, okay, so let's say the core wound for the, the anxious attachment style, one of the really big ones that's really easy for a lot of people to understand, even if they're not anxiously attached, is I'm not good enough. Mm-hmm. So the first thing we do when we're trying to reprogram a core wound is we have to find the opposite, right? Because we're trying to say, I'm getting away from this. So it would be, I am good enough. If it's I'm abandoned, I will be connected. I am unworthy, I am worthy. I can't trust anybody, I can trust, right? So so we, we find the opposite of these core stories that we're carrying. And then I really don't believe in affirmations too much because affirmations are very conscious. Like if I say to you, mm. no matter what you do, do not think of the pink elephant. Right. Like, 
you, obviously I see a pink elephant in my mind immediately. Maybe I see a multiple in different shades of pink. Yes. <laughs> so that's because your subconscious automatically pictures that. Your conscious mind hears do not, but your subconscious mind has these pictures. Now, mm. these core wounds, they're not conscious. Nobody sits and says, today is Monday and I'm going to think about how I'm not good enough today. Like nobody is choosing that. And so we have to address the problem where it exists, which is at the subconscious mind level. So if we know that the conscious mind speaks language and the subconscious mind speaks emotion and imagery, then we have to speak in the language of the subconscious mind to change those programs. So what we want to do is we're like, well, where is emotion and imagery? Well, interestingly enough, every memory we have is actually emotion and imagery. If I were to say, Kayla, tell me your favorite childhood memory you would picture it as an image. Absolutely. Yeah, you would picture it as an image or set of images in your mind and you'd actually have the emotion. Like if you started recounting it, you would probably start smiling Mm -hmm. or you'd feel the emotion attached to it. So now we have the hack for reprogramming. And so now we just have to plug it in and leverage repetition. So repetition and emotion fires and wires these new neural pathways. And so all we have to do is pair these ingredients together. So if it's, I am not good enough, For repetition, we do this 10 times, okay? Research shows it takes 21 days to totally reprogram by firing and and wiring totally new neural networks. So we say, I'm not good enough, I am good enough. And we come up with 10 memories a day for 21 days. And then we get the repetition, we get the emotion and imagery. So we deal with the problem where it is at the subconscious level and it, it produces extremely powerful results. We can leave behind like these pa- these really painful ideas. Of, I'll always be abandoned. I'll always be alone. I'm so unworthy. I'll always be rejected. I'm not good enough. Like these really painful core stories, we can actually shift and change altogether within that 21 day period. And does it have to be the same or d- does it have to be different memories every day or can it be the same? few memories that you're reconjuring because I can imagine as many memories as we have that might be a lot to try and think of new ones. Great question. So the answer is you can actually just, you can streamline the process a lot. So you can pick 10 ones that really produce that emotional reaction for you. Uh And then if people are like really busy, they're on the go, I would actually just have clients at the time record these memories, talk about them, record it into their phones and just listen back and feel about them before bed or while they're brushing their teeth or on the way to work. And so we can streamline the process because we're just leveraging the repetition, emotion, and imagery. And it produces really profound results. Wow. I mean, I honestly, that's that's such a relief to hear you say that because hearing the process can sound overwhelming, but then when you break it down into those small little steps, it feels so doable. And the fact that you can just listen back to it too makes such a difference. So, I mean, that's truly incredible. And I guess let's move on now to the impact that our attachment styles can have on relationships, because let's say we master reprogramming ourselves. Obviously, there will be others out there who are still sort of stuck in their attachment styles. And I think how we relate to each individual depends on being able to figure out what their attachment style is. Is that correct? So there's definitely ways of identifying somebody's attachment style that are pretty clear. So we can definitely talk about those. And I think that like one of the best parts of doing 
saying this is just that when you understand somebody else's attachment style, we can have so much more context for their behavior. And so we stop taking it less personally. Like I'd often see, for example, we tend to all as human beings project from our perception. So like, let's pretend that, so I was a fearful avoidant before I did the work, but, but let's pretend for argument's sake that I'm anxious attached. Okay. Okay. And let's say I'm, I'm dating somebody who's dismissive avoidant. Anxiously attached people, when they like somebody, they usually want to spend all day, every day with that person. And they want to talk to them all day, every day. Mm-hmm. Dismissive avoidance can really like somebody, but they pretty much have a threshold, especially in the early stages of like, you know, seeing you once or twice a week, things like that. So obviously, because we all tend to think that people are as we are, you'd right. see an anxiously attached style go, oh my gosh, they don't want to see me every day. They must not like me the way I like them. They may not be interested. And then they feel hurt and then they personalize that person's actions or behaviors. Whereas like for dismissive avoidance, they have less of an emotional bandwidth. So they actually just need more time to re-regulate and to actually have that time to themselves. So what happens is, When we can recognize that, it's like, oh, that's not about me, right? That's about their programming, their needs, how they function as a human being. So obviously in marriages, in new relationships, it's so valuable to be like, oh, these are their needs. This is how they're wired and it's different for me. And then also when we know that person's needs, because we know that different needs clearly go with different attachment styles, then all of a sudden we're empowered to say, okay, this is what makes my partner feel loved. Because another thing that's really important to note is like our needs are the biggest way that we give and receive love in relationships. So Mm. if one person really needs emotional connection and another person needs novelty or fun, if we're only trying to get our needs met and we're only trying to give love in the way that's comfortable and familiar to us, we can really miss the boat on things that way. So it makes a huge impact. So, so some different, I'll share a little bit about the needs and how to identify the attachment style. So Dismissive avoidance, they generally are a little bit slower to warm up to new people is one of the first ways of sort of noticing. They tend to be a lot more focused in like their thinking rather than their feelings. They tend to be sometimes a little bit standoffish if there's a conflict. And usually their main coping mechanisms for a conflict are to kind of shut down, to stonewall, and to avoid. They tend to sort of deactivate around those things pretty specific. And you'll generally see dismissive avoidance. They spend a lot of time vetting people. They'll be slower movers in relationships. They'll take a little bit longer to commit and to really open themselves. And they tend to sometimes do a little bit of flaw finding or be a little bit critical, which is actually a protection mechanism against having to be too vulnerable or feel too much or attach too deeply. Oh, wow. So those are some like sort of early indicators of dismissive avoidance. Then we have fearful avoidant attachment styles. Fearful avoidant attachment styles, because of being through a lot of chaos in childhood, are extremely hypervigilant. They are like 10 steps ahead on everything. They notice any little shifts and changes and patterns immediately. They can be a little bit suspicious around people, but they tend to be highly charming and charismatic. They've really had to figure out people and how to connect with them and how to, you know, when people over, they are extremely present in their first interactions with people. They they are very good at like being there, showing up. They tend to be very giving and generous in their relationships, but they struggle to receive. They struggle to oh, wow. be vulnerable around things that are actually vulnerable for them. So, you know, you, you may see fearful avoidance, like open up and share things, but when they're sharing, it may look vulnerable, but if there's something they're really feeling vulnerable about, you'll never know. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. And they may be the ones in relationships who are like, they'll, they'll be quite hot and cold. So you'll seem like there's mixed messages. They're sort of like really available when they're they're there with you, but then they can kind of drop off when they're not. Mm. So you'll see that sort of like distance there. 
Anxious, preoccupied attachment styles tend to be very loving, very warm, very charismatic, very thoughtful when you first meet them. They really care about people. And you'll actually see they tend to organize their whole life around their relationships. They tend to be a little bit insecure. Like they spend a lot of time worrying, do people like me? Will they approve Mm -hmm. of me? What did they think of me? They spend a lot of time and focus there. And they're very sensitive to being rejected, to being excluded. Like those are big core wounds of theirs. Mm -hmm. And so they will also tend to kind of people please chronically and put themselves last a lot. Hey guys, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back in just a minute. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. And we're back. I mean, there's so many different... So when I when I went through this, I was trying to figure it out for myself and for my husband because I do see how valuable it would be to your relationship to really truly know what your significant other's attachment style is. And this goes for like anyone, even if you're not in a relationship, like your best friend's attachment style or your boss's attachment style, right? So <laughs> I mean, how do we figure, I guess, figure out... Let's say we want to kind of figure out our boss's attachment style, but we don't don't know them that well. How, how do you, are there certain like ways we can figure out someone's attachment style without being like invasive? <laughs> yes, <laughs> we can definitely notice like how, like, you know, if you see a, your boss, for example, you'll usually see that your boss, if they're dismissive avoidant, they actually are very sensitive to criticism, dismissive avoidance. You would never know because they're so stoic that like you won't really mm-hmm. see, but they really internalize things and then they separate from things that don't feel good for them. So generally like you'll see a lot of sort of standoffishness coldness, speaking about things more at a high level, a lot of sort of distancing strategies in there. You'll never really know something personal about your boss if they're dismissive avoidant, or it would be very rare for them to Mm. talk about like really personal things. Fearful avoidance are like so present. Sometimes I feel like it's confronting. Like they're so present. They're so there that you, it's almost like, oh my goodness. And they will notice 
every little thing about everybody. Like, oh, you walk into the room and they're like, oh, you seem like not yourself today. You know, within like an instant of, of sort of connecting. Wow. You'll generally see a lot of that sort of hypervigilance, but fearful avoidance tend to have a lot more dramatic lives. Big highs, big lows, because a lot of that is their programming. And honestly, their nervous system's usually really dysregulated. So they're usually operating and making life decisions from like fight, flight, freeze, or fawn, which is like people-pleasing mode. And then anxious attachment styles, again, you'll see them just really prioritize like people, relationships, be so, sort of like charming and, and really focused there. I'm curious what you felt like your attachment style. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. So, and this is just me. Like, I don't know. I would love to have someone like actually try and figure it out for me that, you know, like if you, if we ever did a session where you could, you know, really dive deep, but definitely the secure uh, initially, because my childhood was very lovely and relationships seemed to be very healthy. But then, and forgive me because I'm going to forget exactly the one that is, you know, uses a a people pleasing thing. I think we just anxious, anxious attachment was sort of my sub category that I mean and I don't know if this is true or not but I found as I was reading your book I felt like it may have developed later on in life or maybe it just showed itself later on in life maybe it was always there but when I think of my childhood as a core I'm not sure it really existed but then once I was you know out in the world on my own it seemed to maybe come to fruition more so is that something that can happen or I mean this is totally me just making this up so I don't know if that's possible absolutely correct. So, so what happens is like, we're always being imprinted. Like our, our subconscious mind is always being like reprogrammed a little bit by whatever we're exposed to repetitively that creates an emotional response. So it's very common to have like a a, a main attachment style and then to have shifts and changes based on like the relationships we're in. Like you might've been secure. Maybe you dated somebody who was really avoidant as like your first relationship as a teenager, for example, and just being exposed to that repetitively might've created a little bit of anxious attachment style. So like, we have the power to be reconditioned at any time. And even though we develop our attachment style very young, you can actually see a child grow up in a home, be fully secure, and then, God forbid, but like there's a bad divorce or, or we lose a parent or somebody passes away or and that has the power to deeply imprint us, which can then cause us to really change our attachment style as well. Yeah. I mean, and you know, speaking of growing up, you have a really fascinating story about how you came to your career. I know we've already like been speaking to you for a long time, but would you mind, if you feel comfortable, would you mind sharing a little bit of it with us? Because I know you were an injured soccer player, right? And you were prescribed something for the pain, but I think it's really interesting to know how you came to your career because that is absolutely probably the most asked question we get on this podcast is how to, you know, figure out where you end up in life. And yours is a really interesting path towards it. So if you wouldn't mind sharing, would you give us just a little snippet of that for our listeners? Thank you. So there was sort of like a twofold experience for sure for me. So I think one was that my parents were really dramatic. They had a lot of like really terrible arguments and fighting. Like they really struggled in their relationship. And I think from a very young age, I was first like, why is it like this? And I was a very Mm -hmm. sensitive child. And I think I internalized a lot of that stuff. And I always wondered about relationships. And then by the time I was 15 years old, I was like, I need to get out of my home. I need to get away from the drama. I was always like in the middle. I was always sort of like the counselor for both of my parents, like sort of back and forth. And my parents like are very loving people, but they just together, they really had a hard time. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I was like, okay, I need to get out of my home and had knee surgery in like my scouting year and was prescribed painkillers. And I think like I was I had all this internalized just stuff that I hadn't worked on or worked through. And 
I remember taking my painkillers and and feeling like, wow, like this makes life easier. You know, it like solves the problem, right? Yes. Yeah. And I felt like everything, I think I felt all this emotion and all this stress. And I felt like it just like calmed everything for me and just made things like easier to deal with. And I knew pretty early, like, oh, I'm like hooked. And I I actually knew somebody who was a year older than me who was like, oh, these are also performance enhancers. And she also was selling them. And so, you know, I would go to her and I would get them and I would, you know, and so it just became this like actually like really terrible, really hard six and a half year battle with like almost daily use minus like times I couldn't get them and then go through terrible withdrawals. And it was just like a horrible experience. But one of the biggest things that stood out to me there is that like, at a pretty like about a year in after I had my first experience with withdrawals I didn't even really know what they were because I was young and it terrified me when I found out like oh that was withdrawals like because it's a not fun thing to feel physiologically and so I started like journaling I'd be like okay I'm gonna avoid her in the hallway I'm gonna avoid this person I'm gonna delete numbers from my phone I'm going like I would write out all these things I was gonna do and every single day I would be like I'm not gonna do them I'm not gonna do them I'm gonna get clean I'm gonna sober up and then I would just go back to the same behavior over and over again and like that was probably one of the hardest parts of the whole experience of being an addict was like how like helpless you feel in the relationship to yourself and like how like weak and like powerless you just feel and it created a lot of like self-loathing for me honestly this is such a good example of what you were talking about in the beginning of the subconscious and the conscious mind so this was your first example in life of you know making a decision constantly consciously to do something and then the subconscious taking over and saying nope actually we're doing this wow and I was so I was in a psychology class so I got a soccer scholarship in the end and I was like I probably looked like my life was doing well from the outside. Mm. I was like tormented. Like I was like hanging on by a thread. Like I was in chaos and I was in a class and I was thinking of dropping out of school so many times because I just couldn't even like handle life. And I had somebody in front of me and they, they were talking to me who ended up being like sort of a mentor in my life. And he said, oh, the conscious mind can't outwill the subconscious mind. And it was like the, the clouds parted for me in that moment. It was such like an intense moment because I was like, oh my God, you're explaining like, like all of the reasons. Yeah. And I, after that, it was like my world lit up on fire. Like I was like everything. I just wanted to understand the subconscious mind. And I would like try to read books and find things. And that was like my first big certification was in hypnotherapy because I knew that that was all subconscious mind work. And that's where I was like, oh my goodness. And then it kind of like, so I got sober. Like I, I was actually in rehab, like inpatient and outpatient. It didn't work for me. And I'm definitely not saying like people should do sobriety on their own, but I had tried NA meetings, AA meetings, all the things. And then when I finally learned what your subconscious mind's all about, and I was able to dig in and be like, oh, I'm using painkillers to solve emotional pain and go in and reprogram core wounds and learn to meet my own needs and learn to regulate my nervous system. I didn't need this like reliance anymore on this. And it was almost like because I targeted the roots, the surface symptoms went away. Like I see addiction as a symptom of deeper unresolved things. And so when I resolved the, the depths of them, everything else fell into place. And so then I was like, I need to shout this from the rooftops to everybody. Like, I just wanted to share. I would give workshops for free. 
all these things. And anyway, wow. so, so then it ended up, then I kind of ended up, people would always ask me about their relationships. And I had already done all this work with people and like reprogramming their core wounds, learning their needs, learning to regulate their nervous system, learning their boundaries. And what was so funny is when I circled back to attachment styles, I was like, oh my goodness, all these things fit neatly into these categories. Like each attachment style has really specific core wounds and they have really specific needs. And so when I would know someone's attachment style, I would know exactly like how to help them reprogram and what their different challenges were. And so it just kind of fit neatly into these boxes with things I was already working on. And that's where like the integrated attachment theory was kind of born from is that it was like, oh, here, everything fits neatly in these boxes when we're able to target them at a subconscious level. I mean, you were your own first experiment, which is yeah. <laughs> unbelievable. And, you know, there's such a positive outcome to all of this because you now have the personal development school, which I know you had initially started your private practice and you've spoken to us about that, but you found yourself with a two-year wait list and thought, well, wait a minute, so many people, I can help so many more people with developing a school and you expanded. And I know you have 38 million views on social media and, you know, in surveys, people have... 95% satisfaction rate. So talk to us a, a little bit about that. And I just have to commend you because once you've found what worked for you, clearly it's working for other people and all you want to do is share it. Like you said, you had free workshops for people. You just want to help other people. And that is such a testament to who you are as an individual. Thank I mean you that. So yeah. Thank you. That was so sweet. So yeah. So, so basically what happened is then I would see clients and client practice. And because like, I felt like a lot of the Western world wasn't talking about the subconscious mind and all the power there, right. what I was experiencing, and this isn't to knock that because it talk therapy can be really valuable for lots of reasons, but I felt like through talk therapy, people would gain insight, but then they wouldn't know how to recondition things. So we would get caught in the cycle where people would come to me and be like, I've been in therapy for 20 years. This is my last hope. And they would know all the reasons why they were doing things, but they wouldn't be able to stop them. And it was like, oh, we just need to recondition the patterns there. There's, you know, there's different things that we can approach that can help really, truly help move the needle. So I was getting all these results very quickly with people. And then people would refer me out to friends and family. And, and so my practice built really, really fast. And then I would find myself like feeling terrible that people would be like, oh, I really need help. I really need support. And I'd be like, hey, you know, two years from now, we might be able to, to connect. And so I ended up just being like, how do I like share this more? Not really with like any intentions, but that's when we put a lot of our content on YouTube and YouTube grew. And then it was like, okay, how do we target the core issues people are facing, whether it's like boundaries or communication or the relationship patterns or like their self-esteem. And so what I did is create 60 different courses on like major areas of life, whether it was like career or self-esteem or, you know, communication. And it's all personal development for the subconscious mind. So it's like, okay, you can get the insights. Here's some insights on why this might be happening, but like, here's how to actually change it. And so that's sort of where PDS grew from. And we have about 7,500 active members. We've had about 35,000 people through the programs. And so it's honestly just so exciting for me because I like, I would have like, there is periods of time I was like, I can't believe people are not talking about the subconscious mind. Like I would just go around and probably my friends and family were so sick of me talking about it because I just would like tell them and tell them and tell them. So it was really helpful for me. I got my needs met to be able to share because I'm very, very passionate about the topic. But you are right. You know, Western medicine is so, you know, it's just so different from Eastern and Eastern medicine really is about the subconscious mind. And, you know, we all find what works for us. But if something's lacking, it's really nice to know that it, the resources are out there and available. And I, I guess what I'd love to end each podcast on is asking, you know, if you could give 
yourself any advice that you wish you would have received as a young child, what would it be? Because, you know, I think growth and development, I mean, you've done so much self-work and that's in, in amazing and so nice to see and uh, honestly really inspiring because I think it's the hardest work to do. But if you had advice for your younger self, what would that be? I would say out of everything, I would say that one of the biggest things I learned that was, it, it helped so much with like all of my reconditioning. And I learned this later in life. I wish I learned this much earlier is just the impact of like self-compassion. So as somebody who saw a lot of fighting, I heard a lot of mean words and negative things, you know, about one parent to the other, but also between them. And it's a big part of how we get programmed. Like we pick up on a lot of what's modeled to us. It's repetition and emotion. You're repeatedly seeing, hearing these things. And so much of like how you're spoken to becomes your internal dialogue or how you see people constantly speaking to each other becomes like your own internal dialogue. And one of the things that was like very hard for me was when I was an addict, oh my goodness, like I would just beat myself up like crazy, say the meanest things to myself. And it's funny because we think like, I'm going to beat myself up until I get better. (laughs) And how the subconscious works is not that you don't like punish yourself into growth. Like that's not the path and it's not the way. And there's this great quote from A Course in Miracles and it says there are no idle thoughts. And what it's referencing, honestly, from like a psychological standpoint is that all of the ways we speak to ourselves and think about things have the power to contribute to our programming one way or the other. And Mm. so I really kept myself so trapped by being so hard on myself. And then it's like, you know, looking back, one of the first things I realized when I was really starting to meditate a lot because I knew that meditation was going to help me observe my subconscious mind and patterns is I sat down one day and I, it was my first time ever trying to meditate. And I caught myself going, you won't be able to do this. You can't do anything. You can't stick to anything. Why are you bothering? And I was like observing my thoughts and I was like, oh my goodness, no wonder I numb myself all day. I'm numbing my inner world. I'm numbing the way I speak to myself. I'm numbing like my internal dialogue that's going on. And my, I wasn't living at home. I was living in a different country. I was far away from my childhood, but I was still playing that role in the relationship to myself. I was still speaking to myself the way I'd been spoken to or, or, you know, what I had heard between people all the time. And so for me, like a big journey just in terms of reprogramming itself was like constantly reframing my thoughts and constantly being able to observe and interrupt those patterns and shift them. And that was so meaningful to me. And it also changes the way you sort of feel about yourself and then don't have to run from from yourself anymore. So self-compassion is very underrated, I think. And it's a huge part of every individual person's healing. God, you are so full of wisdom and so much to share. I'm so happy we did this episode. Thank you for joining us. And like I said, I really will have the link to your book in the notes and a link to the personal development school. And I'm just really really grateful. Thanks for helping us build the best relationships we can, because I think there's nothing more valuable. And uh, that includes the relationship with ourselves. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This is a really beautiful conversation. I'm so grateful. I think attachment styles are so interesting. I think there is so much more to unpack. She sort of just scratched the surface. Her book is absolutely fantastic. And this is something I'm starting to implement in my life. I think, you know, I'd like to learn more about my own attachment style and Tanner's, my husband's attachment style, and maybe my children's and just relationships that matter the most to me. I think Thais is such an inspiring woman. I'm so grateful she came to join me today. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode as much as I did. We have another great one coming for you next week. Until then, take care. 
Directionally Challenged is a production of Pineapple Productions, hosted by me, Kayla Yule. Produced by Melissa DeMonts and Diamond Imprint Productions. Editing by Diane Kang. Post-production sound by Coco Lawrence. And production assistance by Melanie D. Watson. 